0: Namaste and good evening to all of you who are preparing for the discourse of this week. I'm going to continue tonight with the readings from the Tibetan teachings for the young practitioners of yoga, the so-called yoga of the disciple, which uh, discusses about the different issues of spiritual life Especially the issues related with aspiration and commitment into such a typically Tibetan way, and uh, at the same time, it is uh, dividing them into categories. Last week, we were looking into the 16th category called the, called the 10 signs of a superior man or woman again. Tonight I'm opening for you the chapter number 17, which is called the 10 Useless Things. The very title contains in it a hint of the acidity of this chapter as well, because it's going to speak about 10 things which are useless, and obviously it's not going to say that meditation is useless or that other spiritual things are useless. You realize from the very beginning that in this chapter Tibetan teachers are unmasking, are exposing the madness of the human life, the foolishness of the human life, exposing it as totally useless like people do this and this and that. It's a totally useless thing given this and that. Logically, beautifully showing with wonderful arguments the usefulness, the uselessness of many of the things which the human beings do. Therefore this is also a pretty sarcastic chapter. In between the lines There is a sarcastic sense of humor here because it simply says, why are people bothering to do this or that? So the first of them starts at the bottom as you would expect. First useless thing, our body being illusory and transitory, it is useless to give excessive attention to it. It's us brief as that. Today, for many people, yoga has become a self-pampering industry. Yoga has become fitness, in which people do it to look good, to feel good, and all that. Tibetan yogis say, if instead of doing that, you would be meditating on the who am I question, you would be more benefited because your body, <coughs> there is nobody on, this, on the face of this earth except some legendary characters which are not verifiable, but scientifically, rationally verifiable. There is nobody on the face of this earth that has lived beyond the scope of a natural life. Even if you read that some yogis may have lived 120 years or a bit more than that, it still may be within the limits of a rationality. But otherwise, from Jesus himself, who after resurrecting, he still dematerialized and ascended to heaven, all the way until Mai from Milarepa until... Sri Ramakrishna, from uh, Padma Guru, Padma Sambhava, till you name it, everybody has passed away. Within a certain lapse of time, even great masters that had the reputation of having reached full enlightenment, Sahaja Samadhi, Unmilana Samadhi, full on, they are still not among us physically. They gave up their physical body one way or another. We can argue about the diamond body, the rainbow body and that, but fact is that even those people are not here in this hall tonight. They are not present in this generation. It's true that some yogis are enticing us with legends of avatars and... uh, Gurus that allegedly lived 800 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years and more. But again, scientifically, rationally, those are only total exceptions. They are not corresponding to the main trend. That's why the Tibetans are cruelly true. It's a cold shower and everybody needs to take this cold shower. Our body being transitory, transient, like it's not going to last more than a certain period of time, and being even illusory, that is, of course, from a more metaphysical standpoint, that the whole reality has something illusory to it, not unreal, but illusory. It is not what it seems to be. It is an appearance of something else. So our body being illusory and transitory, it is useless to give excessive attention to it. Unfortunately, the modern attachment to the flesh and to the matter has reached until yoga. We are not talking about the fact that people are doing some acts in life which are preposterous just for the sake of a material existence because people don't see anything beyond the material existence and then it is legitimate for people that have that doubt to say after all I don't know if there is anything beyond the physical life so it's normal for me to cling as much as possible to this physical life because the rest seems to me like empty promises. Some people say that after you die you go into an afterlife. But has anybody been able to prove that conclusively? No, because if it would have been proven conclusively, you wouldn't have atheists, you wouldn't have materialists today. They would all have been convinced by a crushing evidence of some sort. There is no crushing evidence in the history of this world. And all those of you that attended the first level of Agama, the lecture about Svadhyaya, where there is some account of the phenomenon called wall of silence, you know that it is not even possible. It is through cosmic law that it is made in such a way that it cannot be proven, that it should not be possible to prove precisely so that the freedom of choice would remain because a crushing evidence would automatically take any freedom of choice away from people. So in this way, what I'm saying here is not only that people do exceptional things like this. Try to think about so many religions that are worshipping the mortal remains of people. In Judaism, Christianity and others, people have invented all sorts of Theologies about a second coming and resurrection of the bodies. You are not going to resurrect in spirit. Oh no, you are going to resurrect in flesh. And therefore every little bone and hair of yours has to be preserved like it's some holy relics in tombs over tombs over tombs all over the world hoping that one day you are going to resurrect bodily and uh, if by any chance you have been pulverized by an explosion or burned to ashes in a crematorium, God is going to be in a very dire strait because God is not going to be able to find the atoms to rebuild your body again and to resurrect you. There are all sorts of ridiculous such beliefs which show nothing else but a concealed materialism. Those people are just the victims of materialism. Of course that if there would exist a phenomenon so paranormal as a bodily resurrection of the whole of the humanity, then it wouldn't be an obstacle for an almighty cosmic consciousness to bring up the atoms from the four corners of the universe that once were part of your body, and rebuild them what do you do with the fact that the atoms which are now in your body a thousand years ago they may have belonged to the body of a christian or a jew or someone else and if the resurrection would come tomorrow there would be an auction on the atoms in your body because somebody will say no they belong to my body it's no it, they can't stay in your body would start quarreling over to whom do the atoms belong, in whose body they should be. It's preposterous. Every logical person realizes that these are absurd beliefs and it's because people are so fixated on materialism. That's the only thing which the brain can understand and therefore people are projecting it all the time. Even if there is an afterlife, there shall be a resurrection of the flesh. Why is it necessary to have a resurrection of the flesh, after all? Why would, it, why would the Divine Consciousness and the Divine Spirit in every human being require that for evolution? And that's why what I'm saying here is human beings do preposterous things. Human beings, when there are 30,000 people dying of hunger every day, human beings build themselves marble funeral monuments. Why would you spend tens of thousands of dollars to give yourself a casket which is with golden handles? Why would you on earth, would you want to have a coffin with a glass window to it? Why on earth would you want to have a funeral home, a monument which is bigger than the house of many people in this world to keep there a rotting piece of flesh, to keep there a piece of matter which decays and which a thousand years from now will have no meaning unless if you are Saint Catherine the Great or something and then your body becomes religious relics but otherwise it won't have any other meaning. This is why we not only that people do all these crazy exaggerations in the name of pumping up some materialistic concealed beliefs when the reality is spiritual. As Jesus said, God is spirit. It's not about places, flesh, objects, and those are simply circumstantial. The divine reality is a spiritual reality. Not only that people have all these obsessive things about the survival of their flesh and bones, but people have moved this even in yoga. Today, people are hijacking spiritual traditions and they are making it into fitness. At the time when yoga was an almost self-destructive Vedantic discipline in India, a survey done in the time of the British Raj in India showed that there were five times more males than females practicing yoga in India. Today, a survey done 20 years ago in Canada showed that 95% of the spiritual, of the yoga practitioners in Canada are women. Why? Have men have gone to the dogs so badly? Have women come up so spectacularly? No. The sad truth is that those 95% women who practice yoga, they don't practice yoga because they want to reach nirvana. They practice yoga because it makes their legs look beautiful. It's because it emphasizes the waistline. It's because it firms your breasts up. It does other things which are going to be eaten by the worms in a hundred years anyway. Tibetan yoga brings you to your senses, saying, our body being illusory. Illusory. It's an illusion. It's not unreal. But it is like a dream world of some sort. Being illusory and transient, it's going to pass away, it is useless to give excessive attention to it. It doesn't say it is useless to give attention to it. Because the body is a wonderful instrument. If we cannot work with our causal body, then maybe we can work with our astral body. If we cannot work with our mental and astral body, then our last chance is, maybe you can work with the physical body. Most people don't have a clue of what the causal body is, and their destiny flows unchecked by itself. Most people, unfortunately, even if they learn in a yoga course about the mental body and the astral body, they have almost zero capability Of controlling their mind and emotions. We see even in the world of yoga, so many men and women, when some extreme circumstances arise, they are gone completely. All the mental control, all the emotional control has gone to the dogs. And people say, how can you stop from feeling that? It's simple. You can stop from feeling that. But you actually don't want or you have forgotten how. In some circumstances where people were taken into concentration camps, or when people had to struggle for their life, or when people have a gun pointed at their head, suddenly it becomes possible to have emotional control. So it is possible. But people have grown very lazy and complacent. And there is no more yang. There is a lot of yin. Self-abandonment like this, and then people have no control over that. And people say, how can I control that? And then you know what? Then you become incarnated physically. Then your spirit goes even lower and takes a physical kosha over it. Can you at least control your physical kosha? Many people don't. Many people cannot control their sexual energy and sexual phenomena. Many people cannot control the posture of their body. And when you tell them, sit up straight, be extrovert, they just go like this and they are slumping into a depressive position of the body. Like even the position of the body, people don't control it. But at least this is rock bottom. Like yoga simply says, come on. You can go into the shoulder stand, for God's sake, you know, like if you can't even go in the shoulder stand, you are damaged goods, you know, it's like we can't do anything for you. Suffer, bite the dust, yell in agony, and in five lifetimes you'll probably become a human being, and then you are going to be able to at least control your body. We understand, you can't control your causal body, because you don't even know what that is. You can't control the mental body, because you say, who can control the mind? You can't control your emotions, although you ought to, because otherwise many tragedies are happening from that. But, hey, at least you can control your physical body. Everybody can say, I can try to do my headstand every day. I can try to do 25 udyanabandas. Bandhas. I can, yes, there are some people who are even handicapped physically, and there we are dealing with a very radical type of karma, which prevents those people from even doing things, which most yogis consider banal, tried. But in most situations, the human being, as the Tibetan gurus put it, the, the well-endowed human body, like a human body without major flaws and defects, which is free and all that, a human being theoretically can at least do that. Like you cannot do anything else, you can't control your emotions, and then your yoga guru comes and says, 100 udyanabandas per day, 200 udyanabandas per day. 300 Udhyana, like, screw you, you know, I'm going to get you somewhere. You think you can't control your mind, you think you can't control your body, udiana bandas, Bandhas, Udiana Bandhas, till you drop, till you break down, you know, like we can do something, at least the body, you can control it. You can do something with your body from morning till evening. If you live in hell, then let's use your body to get out of hell. So the body is an excellent instrument. Do not underestimate it. Because Tibetan yoga does not say that you should not give attention to the body. It uses the word excessive. Not to give excessive attention to the body. Like, how long is your body going to survive? What is realistic to invest in it or not? This is like, Should uh, Milarepa, when he is 60 years old, should he get a facial lift? Should Milarepa get a facial lift? This is the question which Milarepa can ask him himself. Is it worth it? What do I get if I get a facial? Now, I'm going to invest $10,000 into this. $10,000 can feed children in Africa for months and months. Why do I want to do this? Therefore, realize that here there is a great wisdom. It's painful and raw and direct. But in the modern times, many people are so hypnotized by their physical needs that there will constantly be this influence of giving to the body excessive attention. Excessive attention. Paramahamsa Yogananda shows the photo he taken in Kumbh Mela, a very, very poor quality photo, but still of a woman who was a tantric guru. And at the time of that photo being taken, she apparently was 118 years of age. And she had black hair without dyeing it. Her hair was still black. So she had preserved youthfulness by probably suppressing her menstrual cycle, by performing urine therapy, by kundalini yoga, probably by using sexual tantric practices, this woman had extended the youthfulness of her body enormously. And that would be very encouraging for many people. Many people would look at that and would say, well, look what yoga can do. Therefore, which are the secrets? What diet should I do? How should I live my life? And so on. Of course, some people today are so vice-ridden that they might fall in the opposite extreme and say, no, no. The sacrifices which you have to do for that are so big that I prefer to live 70 years the normal way. Than to live 120 years like that person did, because that person had no fun, or at least that person had nothing of which I consider as fun today, and therefore I'm not interested to live 120 years in a dead boring way, or in a way which for me today, subjectively, can sound as dead boring. That is why here we are touching a very, very Peculiar point because the body is valuable. There are many yogis who said, if now that I am 60 years old, I can live another 60 years. My God, it's like life is only starting with my mind from now, knowing what I have got to know in these 60 years. My goodness, what I can do realize, to have this experience already and not to have to be a child again and to start from scratch and to learn elementary things and to understand how the world is and to have the wisdom of the age and to understand the human mind and the human nature Amazing! No? It would be fantastic! Remember that the prophets in the old days in the Bible, in the Egyptian dynasties and others People were living more than 500 years, 800 years, 900 years. It is said by mystery researchers that the people from Agartha, from the underground realms of Shambhala, they live around a thousand years of age. Like because they discovered ways of perpetuating, of keeping the lifespan very long. So of course living so many years, then you can do, like you can learn and learn and learn. Imagine the progress you can do in science. If you would study physics or chemistry for 300 years, and then start making inventions and innovation based on that. No, it would be abysmally fantastic to be able to go into those places. So the body is not wrong. Tibetan yoga says the body is very useful. And you, it is a crime to persecute your own body. It is a crime to destroy your own body. But it is also a useless thing, therefore slightly foolish, to give to your body this obsessive, pathological type of attention which some people put on it. As usually, the answer is somewhere in the middle. There exists a middle path which reflects the balance, the harmony, and the wisdom. It is Christian mystics condemn people who doing too much tapasia, too much austerity, they destroy their body in the process. They say, what use is there that you do tapas, and in that tapas you destroy your body? Because then it's like you commit suicide. You commit a spiritual form of suicide, but it's still a suicide. If you are fasting too much and you are destroying things in the body, then you are killing yourself. And the fact that you are killing yourself by fasting doesn't make it acceptable or holy. Therefore, it is not a good thing to destroy the body, but it is neither a wise thing to give to it excessive attention. This word is very important because you should not jump into the extremes. There are many people who say, oh, if I don't give attention, uh, then I don't care. The Tibetans don't say, you should not care about the body. Analysis done in the world of science show that the majority of the diseases including epidemics starting with cholera and smallpox and plague and all the big ones and finishing with whooping cough and measles and stuff like that, they decreased dramatically in humanity, not because of vaccines, that's a lie which is told by medical societies. It is well known scientifically and it can be proven in crushing ways that all the major epidemics of this planet decreased in the hundred years where hygiene was brought to the masses. Hygiene. The people started living longer and stopped having miserable epidemics not because some miracle medicine was invented but because life became hygienical until 1800 and something in many cities of Europe The garbage was dumped in the middle of the street in the night and there was no garbage removal service. The garbage was thrown by every member of the society in the middle of the street, period. What happened with the garbage? It was eaten by the pigs and by the rats in the night time. You can imagine what a pestilential smell and what an awful environment was there. But let's push the envelope, you can read historical novels like the Taipan of James Clavell and find out with horror that until 1850 there did not exist any systematical way of cleaning yourself after going to the toilet. Toilet paper and these things appeared only in the end of the 19th century. So what did people do 200 years ago after they were passing the stool? You don't want to know, really. Make some research and find out, and you will be appalled by how the people were living, by how many times they were washing themselves, what were they doing after passing the stools, where were they drinking water from, which were the water sources, how they were getting rid of their garbage, and all that. Therefore, realize, it is possible to take care of the body in ways which are not excessive. Like, of course, the fact that somebody is taught to live in a hygienical way, in a natural but clean way, it's, of course, a great conquest. And the yogis say, yes, the yogis are the ones who came with kriyas and washings of all kinds and so on. If you compare the yogis of India with the rest of the medieval society, the yogis of India were hyper-hygienical compared to what was happening into the society of their times. And thus, this point remains valid and it is to be meditated upon like what is excessive. Because many people (coughs) are blinded by their own fears, blinded by their own neediness, blinded by their own desires and they don't realize What is excessive, what is too little, and what is the right amount of attention. The second of the useless things continues in the same tough way. This one is longer, it explains, it's like it takes you there socratically, logically, like, you know, two and two makes four, look, seeing that when we die we must depart empty-handed. And on the morrow after our death, our corpse will be expelled from our own house. It is useless to labor and to suffer privations in order to make for oneself a home in this world. That echoes exactly what Jesus said. He said, Behold the lilies in the field. They are dressed more beautifully than King Solomon in his glory. So stop toiling and weaving and putting so much energy into dressing up. Because it's like God made you beautiful. You don't need to do anything. Behold the birds of the sky, said Jesus in an ultimate hippie type of statement. Behold the flower, behold the birds of the sky. They don't sow and they don't reap and yet God holds them alive, and feeds them. But this is the point. The point is to surrender. Because many people will say, yeah, but when there is a drought, many birds might die. So if we human beings live like the birds of the sky, there will come three years where there will be scarce rains, and then many of us will die. This is, again, lack of trust, Like, you cannot surrender and simply say, may God's will be done. And this is attachment. Like, maybe sometimes it is time to die. And maybe sometimes dying a bit earlier could be a blessing. When you don't inflict it on yourself, but it comes through the hand of the providence. Maybe if you die earlier, you are not going to get Alzheimer's and shit yourself day after day and live in an ignoble way and being a burden on yourself and to others. Maybe there is a science, maybe there is a providence to dying early. So it's lack of surrender, lack of trust, lack of confidence in the providence because most people don't even know if there is a providence and they say, yes I trust Swami, yes I believe. I don't know if I believe that much, that I would put my life on it. Therefore, that's a measure of things, and at the same time, there is still the good old attachment to life. So the Tibetans say, try to think, when you die, you can't take a penny with you. Even the clothes which you have on you, they will rot, and they will not be taken by you, really. You must depart empty-handed, and on the morrow after your death, or after two days, or after three days, or after ten days, it doesn't matter, your corpse will be expelled from your own home. You can't hold anything, anything, anything. You say, at least you can hold a funeral home. Even in a thousand years, even that one will be demolished. And if not in a thousand years, then in ten thousand years. Nothing can last forever. Therefore, you can't really take anything. And then the Tibetans come with a very ice-cold solution to all this. They say, since that is the case, it is useless to labor and to suffer privations in order to make for oneself a home in this world. Not to understand that you should not have a home like a place to live. Because even Milarepa had a place to live. He lived in a cave. Even in Garanda Samhita it says a yogi should take some clay and use straw and build himself a hut in a nice place which is not with bugs and not with the floods and not with this and that and in that hut you should stay and practice your yoga practice like Yog Garanda Samhita doesn't say you should live under the palm trees. It says yes, you need a dwelling. But how much deprivation How much labor and privation do you have to endure for that? Not much. Life is conceived in such a way that people are always working to the limit. There are very, very few people in this hall and there are very, very few people in this world that actually have reserves To be for example financially independent and not to have to work till the end of your lives. Everybody lives from one salary to the next. People are on a budget they manage to save a little bit and then it's gone and therefore you look the way the life is conceived that people always have to work to pay their house rent to pay their daily bread a little bit more and not much more. Very few people are in the category which can afford more, and very, very few people are in the category where they are financially independent and they could live in a five-star hotel till the end of their lives, should they choose to, and have room service till the end of their lives. Therefore, Life is made in such a way there are people, economical people, conspiracy people who even see a conspiracy in this. They say Big Brother is adjusting the markets, the prices, everything, so that normal people should be on the verge of survival, always. There is a rabid dog called hunger. There is a rabid dog called poverty running just 10 centimeters behind your bum. And if you stop running, this dog will bite your ass off. No, it's like you can never stop. You can never stop. You can never stop. You always have to work, work, work. It's like a curse. And in the Bible, this was the curse of Adam. Adam, for his disobedience to God, God curses him and he says, With the sweat of your brow will you earn your living and your daily bread. Like this is a cursed condition. It is not the condition of the free human being. It is not the condition of the human being that lives in paradise. That you have to constantly work to have a roof over your head and to have bread on your table. And for this, you have to be a slave. You have to constantly subject yourself to labor and privation. So many people work for companies, businesses, work for all sorts of things. They they hate it and they don't like it and it's like a prison for them and they run away and they get neurotic and this and that. But eventually they have to go back with their tail between their legs because the world is built in such a way that you have to labor and suffer deprivation then there have been people like hermits like Milarepa who simply have said i'm bucking out of this system screw the system i'm just going in the forest and living alone i'm going to build myself some hut somewhere and i'm just going to live like the birds of the sky i I shall find something i shall find mushrooms and a few vegetables and something to eat i don't need much but at least i can be free i don't need to toil and labor I don't need to deprive. Try to realize there are people that have a job that is 9 to 5 plus 3 hours of commuting to the job and back. I know people who are working from morning till evening when they come back home they are like a squeezed lemon. They can't do anything. They come home, they take dinner and they drop dead in bed. And then in the morning they wake up and they go to work on a plantation like slaves in the old days. You are not called slave, but you still, you are a slave. And for what are you laboring? Just to have bread and butter? Just to have a house? And maybe a car and a television set? And just to have a pension when you will be old? That's why Swami Shivananda says, eating, sleeping, procreating. A little laughter and a lot of tears. Like what is there to life? There are people who do this since they are 25 until they are 65. From 25 to 65, they work from morning till evening. And on top of that, they make efforts to raise a child or two. They are slaves. They are slaves for a lifetime. And of course, try to realize, even the slaves in the evening, they were gathering and dancing and singing songs and having sex and whatever they were doing. Like, of course, even slaves learn to put up with their miserable slave life and they try to find the satisfaction in their ghetto, wherever they live as slaves. It's the same, everybody says, yeah, but on Saturday evening I go clubbing and I just shitface myself and I forget about all the trouble in the world. That's just slaves having a little bit of fun. Because of course if they don't have a little bit of fun they will break down completely and they might get smart and riot some people think that this is a conspiracy but some spiritual people think it's simply the result of the karma that's why some people call it by the definition of buddha there is a syntagm of buddha and they say we live on a prison planet this planet is a bit of a prison because look at the conditions where humans have to fulfill humans have to enslave themselves the majority of themselves just for the miserable purpose of surviving, just for having food and house, you have to become a slave. Isn't it possible to live your life in a different way? Isn't it possible to have a freedom like, no, like if you are going to spend 10 hours per day doing something, then why should you work for shell oil for 10 hours for a miserable daily bread? Why shouldn't you pray to Jesus for 10 hours per day? Jesus is a better master than shell oil. But see, materialism and skepticism comes in because people say Jesus is not going to give you bread. Shell oil does give you your daily bread, but Jesus will not. Some people disagree with this and they say you haven't tried it. You don't know. It's maybe your lack of faith which is talking there, So, here the Tibetan conclusion is a little bit tough. Remember that the Tibetans had the life expectancy at the time when this was written of about 37 years. 37 was already old. Try to watch the... There is a movie. From, um, it's inspired by Shakespeare's work, but it's not directly that. It's called The Lion in the Winter, and I think it's about Henrik II of England or something. Some of the kings from the 12th century, 11th century. And Henrik, v, Henrik II, I'm sorry, he is like 45 years old. And he says, I'm 45 years old, and I'm the only survivor of my generation. Everybody in my generation is dead. Like at 45, he's very old already. His life is gone. He considers himself very old at 45. Like life was short. Life was terribly short. Even now, life is short. Ask people who are 80 years old and are on the verge of it and some will tell you if there would be any way to keep my body young and without pain and healthy and I could live another 100 years, I would love to. Like life seems short for many people still and that's why these people were living a very tough life and they said you labor your ass off, you suffer privations, all of it is just to make yourself a home in this world which means to have a roof over your head and to earn your daily bread and in exchange what do you get? When you die you lose everything, you can't use a single thing everything was alone, then isn't it more smart of the monks that the monks were going in a monastery, they were doing spiritual practice from morning till evening they also got bread because they got donations and in this way the labor, the monks did not labor in the field, did not deprive themselves to build houses and when the life was over they got 40 years of meditation, not 40 years of farming. They got 40 years of prayer, not 40 years of agricultural work and trying desperately to perpetuate a situation which cannot be perpetuated and which is ultimately miserable. It is not a very happy situation. Remember, people in prison They put a flower in their window and the semi-naked Marilyn Monroe poster on their wall and they call their cell home, but they are still inmates in a prison and that prison which they are trying to make a little bit happy, it's still a prison after all and they are just lying to themselves Many people say, yes, Swami, we are lying to ourselves because if not, we are going to go crazy. We are going to commit suicide. Life is sad as it is. Do you need people like Buddha or like the Tibetan gurus or like yourself to rub it in our faces to remind us of our misery? Spiritual people remind to you of your misery because they hope you will stand up to the challenge. They hope you will not remain kowtowed. this misery. They hope you'll stand up and choose another way in life, another path. I remember I was talking to a young girl when I was living in Denmark and her mother was a yoga teacher and a wonderfully detached person in many ways and this girl was growing up as many Western children grow up when their parents have been hippies and spiritual people and they couldn't really rub two pennies together and all that. So this girl was not really too much into spirituality because she thought that her mother was a bit of a loser. And then her mother asked me to talk to her because she was getting to be 15, 16 years of age and she had to make some choices about her life. And I told her, "Her, your mother has chosen a spiritual path. And because of this, she chose that kind of spiritual path where she's not trying to accumulate or something. You, on the contrary, you say you love money, you love social things, you love material luxuries, it's fine. But before you do that, before you make that choice, try to think, first of all, how much of you, of your energy, of your soul... Are you willing to give for that? Because it's one thing to work like Bill Gates and to be financially independent for a hundred lifetimes and it's another thing to work 10 hours per day like a slave and to have money from this month to the next month. To not be able to to save anything to barely worry if you are going to have a pension, if the pension funds will not go bankrupt, or something like that. That's why. So I told her, if you want to sell your soul to the God of money, then sell it for big money. Don't sell yourself like a cheap whore, for two pennies. Sell yourself for a billion dollars, at least so if you had a life where you are materialistic and interested in money, then at least you should have it to the hilt. You should have it, at least you should make something out of it. It's fine, you don't want to be spiritual because you think spiritual people are materially precarious and so on. Fine. But at least if you are going to sell your soul down that line, sell it for good money. Don't sell it for what 90% of the population does. 90% of the population are slaves who live from one salary to the next. Is it worth it to live like that? I don't know how you are but I for one wouldn't want to live a life like that. I would feel it disastrous. I would feel it very painful. I'd feel it very tragic if I would have to live my life in that way. That's why you need to evaluate how you live your life, and what do you give on one side, and what do you give on the other side. Make it worth it. It's your time on this planet. It's your energy. It's your soul. Invest it properly. Take care of this investment that you have got in your body, in your life, in your soul. So the Tibetans, in their terrible conditions there, nobody was getting super wealthy in 4,000 meters high. And that place. So the Tibetans said, you know, like, it is useless to labor and to suffer privations just to make yourself a home in this world. Because you are afraid to live in some other way. Saint Mary of Egypt, when she had her epiphany, she ran in the desert. And she lived in the desert for 40 years until her clothes ripped off and she remained naked in the Palestine desert in the merciless sun and so on. She lived with what? With Where did she get water and food? In the desert. But when they found her, she was levitating one meter above the ground when she was praying. When she was praying, her body got lifted in the air by the power of her prayer. So much she was in God. So much she was divinized. So, if you should always know what do you want to do with your life. Sri Aurobindo, who was a wonderfully intelligent yogi of India, well-educated. He was one of the most splendid intellectual yogis of the 20th century India. And he said in the spiritual life, there is sometimes the risk of falling between two chairs. There are two chairs. One of them is Nirvana, and one of them is Bill Gates. Most people fall between those two chairs. They don't do this, and they don't do this. Choose and put all your energy into it and do something. Don't sell yourself cheap. Don't live a miserable life. Some of you may say, you know, Swami, we love you. We love yoga. All this thing is beautiful, but I don't think I'm made of that. I'm having a lot of material projects and so on. Fine. Then go to the top. Don't be just a family tyrant. Become like Genghis Khan. Conquer the whole Asia. Do some things so that we hear about, no, Bl- think big, be big. If you want to be a king, why should you be the king of your family? Some domestic tyrants, who tyrannize their wife and kids, and they are the tyrant of the family. Go big, become the emperor of China, have a billion people under you. Then you can tyrannize a large number of people, and you can leave a mark in history at least, you know, like why would you want to live small? To do small things, spiritually or materially, don't fall between those two chairs. You have to make a decision at one point or another and to give full energy to it. The third of the things which Tibetan gurus considered as useless. Again with argumentation. Seeing that when we die, our descendants, if spiritually unenlightened, which by the way is very seldom, are unable to, le- to render us the least assistance. That's the tragedy. People say, you should have children, so when you die, somebody will be there. Why would you want to have children? Saint Basil the Great didn't have any children when he died. And he didn't need any children when he died. What will the children do when you die? Tibetan yogis are cruelly accurate. They say, seeing that when you die, your descendants, unless your descendant is Ramana Maharishi, like Ramana Maharishi did with his mom. But that happens once in 50 years on the face of this earth. So don't bet on it. So when seeing that our descendants, if spiritually unenlightened, which is 99.99 probability, are unable to render us the least assistance. What will your descendants do when you die? They will call a doctor, and the doctor will give you CPR, which will fuck it up completely for you when you will die in that agonizing way. What will your descendants do? Call for a priest who will mumble a few prayers by your head? What assistance can anybody give when you die? Ah, if you die in the presence of... uh, the Tibetan karma power if you die in the presence of Milarepa or of Ramakrishna or of Ramana Maharishi or of Saint Basil the Great as I, yes, they can assist you. Those are usually not your children and it's a totally, totally rare and special thing. So be aware that they make a big in between the lines there is a very great truth said here that a human being when dying can be assisted. It's very rare and you have to have a very good karma and there has to be a great grace upon you that it so happens that when you die there is somebody to assist you into that. Somebody competent, not somebody who would run in circles and will try to say, are you hungry? Shall I give you some sausage? and other stupid things you know which are completely actually disturbing one in the process of dying. So yes but seeing that our descendants are unable to render us the least assistance. It is possible to receive assistance but not from unenlightened people, not from people that are unwise and who do not have yogic abilities or something like this. So seeing that the normal descendants are unable to render us the least assistance, it is useless for us to bequeath them worldly rather than spiritual riches, even out of love. Even out of love. People say, oh, but I don't leave. I know, I've worked my ass all my life, and now I'm going to leave to my children, to my descendants, Three houses and a big piece of land. Tibetan yoga says, false. It's false. And you say, oh, but I'm not leaving it to them because they can help me when I die. That would be so mercantile. That would, no, I'm leaving it out of love. It is a selfless thing. Tibetan yogis say, it's a fake way of thinking. It doesn't serve you, it doesn't serve them, and actually you are just burdening yourself with the desire to do something, that something is useless. It's like a thunder striking the water. It's zero effect when the thunder strikes the water. There is no effect five minutes later, after the thunder has been striking the water in some place. So the Tibetans say, think. Think efficiently. Be practical. Given Seeing that when we die... The moment of death is the ultimate moment, is the truth. Seeing that when we die, our descendants, if spiritually unenlightened, are unable to render us the least assistance, sometimes a foreign person can help us more, it is useless for us to bequeath to them world riches rather than spiritual. Ah, spiritual riches, can you leave some wisdom to them? You have enriched them. Can you leave something spiritual to your descendants? Then you have given some something of value, something which stays. But you are just giving them material things. It's not good as a business because they can't give anything back to you. And it's not good even as a gesture of love because you are giving them something which is not useful from the standpoint of love. From the standpoint of love you are giving something material which is of no use into that. That's why this is another cruel judgment, Tibetan style. Like no Svadistana, no softness, no political correctness, no lying to yourself like the cruel truth there. Number four of the so-called useless things. Seeing that when we die, again, death is the great denominator. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the great teacher. Memento mori. Remember that you are mortal. Remember death. Death is constantly putting things in the real perspective. Think of death. Think as every day could be the last day. Seeing that when we die, we must go on our way alone and without kinsfolk or friends. People say friends, kinsfolk. My mother is going to wait for me in the afterlife. What if she will be reborn meanwhile in another body? She will not wait for you in the afterlife. And if you are going in counter rhythm, you might not see each other even in the spiritual world for a thousand years. You are not with your mother. You are not with your father. You are not with your brothers, father or children. Even your lovers and husbands, you change them from one life to another. Even in one life you are changing one, two, five, ten, twenty lovers, husbands and others like this. The, The truth which everybody is afraid to look in the eye is that you go on your path alone. As a Christian mystic said, we are born alone and we shall die alone. When you are born and when you die, you have to face that gate alone. Even if you die hand in hand with your lover, when you pass the gates, when you pass the judgment, the judgment is individual. It doesn't help you that you are with somebody. Oh, but we died five in an explosion. You died five in an explosion, the judgment day is individual for each and every one. There is no group package when you die. There is no group processing when you die. Therefore, try to realize people are afraid to be alone but that is the truth of it you are as alone as Buddha is you are as alone as Shiva is you are as alone as God is because spirit is one love is an intrinsical movement in that one I love you because you are me I love you because I am Shiva and you are Shiva and Shiva loves Shiva that's the vision of oneness. That's the monistic vision. And therefore, ultimately the human being has to grow up into this frightening truth. That if I become God, if I'm able to say I am Shiva, like Shankaracharya, if I am able to say Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, then I am alone. Because there is nobody else there. And therefore, the human being has to be able to rise into this. That's why people prefer to be sheep. Beh, beh, you know, you are with me. No, because that feels you makes you feel comfortable. People, when they get up on Mount Everest, they get dizzy. It's too high up there. You get the dizziness of the great heights because you are alone on top of the world. And then you want to come quickly down to socialize. Socializing is an illusion, because it is Shiva talking to Shiva. It is just oneness, and that truth has to be discovered sooner or later. And that is why, he says, seeing that when we die we must go on our way alone and without kinsfolk or friends. People, especially in Asia, they rely so much on kinsfolk. Family is a big thing, and so on. And this is such an illusion. Many, many spiritualists in India in Christianity, in other places, they said, said, rather than staying with your family and kinsfolk, move to another country. be alone. Because this when you are with your kinsfolk, it gives you the false illusion of security. You are weaving like a cocoon around yourself, the thing that oh, there is a safety net, I shall not fall too badly because I am with my relatives and I'm relatively safe. And that numbs you to the actual truth. You should go like Robinson Crusoe, alone on one island, to see what life is, to see what God is, to feel totally insecure, and like you are never going to see anybody again in your life. Then, who are you? Then, what are you? That's why family has a very nefarious attitude on (coughs) Muladhara and Svadhisthana, on the low chakras, a very inferior influence, because it gives to people, it lulls people into a false sense of security. I remember many years ago when I was in Israel, I visited a difficult-to-visit place in the zones between Palestinian territories and Israel which is called Wadi Kelt of Canyon east of Jerusalem going towards Jericho. There was a monastery and in the area between that monastery and Jericho lots of hermits lived and some of the oldest hermits that lived in that area were nobody else than the grandmother and the grandfather of Jesus himself. The unhermits the, the unwritten, the oral history of the church claims that Joachim, Joachim and Anna, the grandparents of Jesus, the parents of Mary, they actually, after Mary was grown up and she got married or something like this, they went into the desert. They ended their lives as prophets. They went into the desert, but they did not live together. They went into the desert and they lived in the same canyon but about three kilometers away from each other. They didn't get to see each other. They lived at some point and then they looked in each other's eyes and then they said, I am going to God, you are going to God, see you in Eden, see you in paradise. I'm going to be one and a half kilometer down the valley. I'm going to be one and a half kilometer up the valley. That's it. Like, to be able to see the universe alone. There is nobody that can take away that loneliness from you. You have to be able to confront the infinite alone. Great spirits have the power of being alone. That's why Buddha was great, because he could go alone and stay there until he lost everything, until he lost his life in the process. So, Seeing that when we die, that is the sad truth which people refuse to see, we must go on our way alone and without kinsfolk or friends. It is useless to have devoted time to their humoring and obliging. says in a parenthesis here, to have devoted time which ought to have been dedicated to the winning of enlightenment. It is useless to spend your time trying to humor and oblige your relatives and your friends being a nice guy, being a nice person, when actually you are not going to continue along the road with them. They have been temporary partners. It's like you ride with somebody in a train. And because you ride with them in a train, doesn't mean you are going to be with them in the next train and in the next trip, And in the next year, and in a thousand years, in ten thousand years, in a hundred thousand years, where will be your kinsfolk from this life? Where will be your friends from this life? Maybe with a few of them you'll create such a karmic bond that a few times in a row, or many times in a row, you will be incarnated together, ping-ponging some karma from each other. But ultimately... They, they are not having your path. You can be an old soul and you are going to gain your Nirvana in six lifetimes and they can be very young souls and they have 6,000 lifetimes to go through samsara before they... so you will not be on the same path with them. You cannot spend time together with them more than riding on the same train. Yes, we are riding on the same train. Hello. My name is Jack. It was good meeting you. No, it was good riding this ride together with you. But who knows when we are going to be together again, or if, or how, or in what circumstances. And therefore, another cruel cutting of the ties (coughs) that bind. Seeing that when we die, we must go on our way alone and without kinsfolk or friends, It is useless to have devoted time to their humoring and obliging or in showering loving affection upon them. Or in showering loving affection upon them. How cruel it sounds. How tough, how how cold it sounds. Tibetan yoga says you might feel good by humoring and obliging friends and relatives and showering uh, loving affection upon them. But it does not solve the problem of evolution. It does not solve the problem of existence. That's why to be a Buddha requires to become superhuman. Some people say, but Swami, it is superhuman to ask from me such a thing. And maybe you are not ripe to be a Buddha. Maybe you are still very, very attached to those things. Remember, great gurus, they did love their mother and sister and this. Milarepa loved his mother, sister. Brahmana Maharishi loved his mother. Jesus took care of his mother even when he was on the cross, dying, crucified. Like it's not that you are not having love. But it says here, it is useless to devote time which ought to have been dedicated to the winning of enlightenment, to the humoring, ob- their humoring, obliging, or in showering loving affection upon them. Yes, Jesus, when he was on the cross, he had the time to shower some affection on his mom, which was left behind. But during his ministry... You don't find a single story in the Bible where it says, And at some point Jesus said, Dear Peter and Thomas, my mom really needs some sugar. I have left her without affection for two years and a half. I really have to visit the village. I have to visit the city of Nazareth because she is drying up because I'm not at home. No. Jesus was relentless. And at some point his mom thought for him, And she wouldn't enter. Like my mom would come now to the conference hall and she would be too proud to come in and sit like just everybody in the hall and she would send somebody. And that somebody comes and says, Swami, your mother and your cousin is waiting for you outside of the hall. And Jesus said, this is my mother and my brothers. Those who listen to the voice of God. Like Jesus said, I don't give a rat's ass on blood connection, on kinsfolk, on the fact that she is my mother. This is my mother. This is my life. This is my family. The family of spirit, not the family of blood and flesh. People put so much importance on those things, not realizing that those things are coming and going. People hope that they are going to make a child, and that child is going to make them happy. And when that child is turning into a weirdo, or into a serial killer, or into a loser, then the parents are not happy at all. And then they say, gosh, it's like you are not my flesh and blood. Oh yes, they are. But flesh and blood doesn't mean much. It's again, the, people say there are proverbs which says, blood does not turn into water. That is again a materialistic obsession. Milarepa did not give the lineage of his school to his sister or to his nephew or to anybody. He gave it to Gampopa who was his best disciple and who could continue the lineage and make something out of it. Ramakrishna was assisted all the time by Hridai, his nephew, who was a bit of a jerk. And Ramakrishna never said, Oh, my nephew Hridai, should be the next generation here. He left his school and his mission in the hands of Vivekananda, who was an able man to continue such a great mission in that time. And that is why people hear the Tibetans cut mercilessly through these illusions that people think that if they surround themselves with family, kinsfolk, friends, they are going to have a safety net It's an illusion and usually when you wake up it's too late because when you wake up you have already crossed the threshold of death and then you realize all those people have gone and in the future I might not see any one of them for 15,000 years and it's like what was the use? Investing time and investing, not trying to be a crowd pleaser. Many people say but Swami do you realize it's very hard to live in this way. Yes, it's hard to live in this way, that's why not everybody reaches to nirvana. I never said it was easy. If it would be easy, the world would be full of enlightened people. It's not easy. I never said it's easy. It's not easy to climb on Mount Everest. Handful of people do it every year. All the big things are not easy. But precisely because it is not easy, It is a glorious thing to do. It is a great thing to do. And those of you who think you've got the stomach for it, you should try. You should give it a try here and now in this lifetime because it is possible. So, yes, I know it's not easy to ask of those things and yet the Tibetan Gurus are relentless. They are not having any shame in asking ultimate sacrifices from people. If I would say that, people would say, oh Swami, you are trying to build a cult, this is a sect, you are trying to keep us away from our family, it is superhuman, so much sacrifices are being asked, you know, one day you are going to turn like Jim Jones and ask us to drink cyanide or something, ask the ultimate sacrifice. I don't ask it. It's something which comes from a tradition. All the traditions are unanimous on this. As the ancient Jewish prophets put it, God is a jealous God. And God says, I want to see that you love me more than your children, more than your parents, more than your loving partners, more than anything in this world. If you love me that much, then I shall come to you. Maybe it's a childish way of presenting the relationship, Of man with God by giving to God such an intolerant personality but it's a way of expressing this thing and it was I forgot his name this beautiful British philosopher who said if you give to God the second place in your life you don't give him any place God can never have the second place Either you give to God the first place or you are not in the game. You are just a hypocrite. You are just pretending. There is no second place for God. There is only the first place for God. I met people of spirit in different traditions. I remember I went to the village where my parents were doing some activity and there was a countryside priest, a Christian priest. And we were taking lunch together. And this priest told me, I didn't know him, he didn't know I was a teacher in yoga, or a guru, or something, and so on. I was keeping a very low profile. I was just the son of two people. He knew, and so on. And this priest told me exactly the same thing. He said, for me, sir, God is the first and foremost. I have a wife, I have two children, and I told my wife from the beginning, before we got married, you always are going to come second. Because the first, Is God. There is nothing which comes before God in my life. You can be at the best second. And my children and the other. My wife, my children are not first. God is first. I took off my hat, metaphorically speaking, because I didn't have any hat, but I took off my metaphorical hat in front of this man because he was living by the principles of spirituality. This simple priest from the countryside He was full of spirit. He had the spirit of it. Don't think it's only about man. Mirabai in medieval India, she dropped her husband who was a prince and her children, an Indian woman dropping her children and she was sleeping in the Hindu temple with the statue of Krishna in her arms. She was so in love with Krishna, she slept slept with Krishna in the bed. And it drove the family so rabid that they poisoned her. They obliged her to drink poison, like Socrates in ancient Greek times. She was poisoned by the enraged family because God was first for her. God was more important than her children, and then her husband, and then her obligation as a wife and as a family woman. This is something which all the mystics have tasted in one way or another. <clears throat> so it sounds very cruel. And please remember, look at the lives of people. Look at the life of Milarepa. Look at the life of Ramakrishna. Look at the life of Ramana Maharishi or Mahananda It doesn't mean that they were not loving people. It doesn't mean that they did not have affection. But they did not waste their time foolishly. They did not try to sell something for affection, trying to humor, trying to oblige all the time. Because they knew it was useless. This is a foolish investment. You don't get anything out of it. And the people to whom you give this, they don't get anything. At least if the people that you are with, they see that all the time you go into meditation, all the time you go spiritual, you are a living example for them. It may piss them off. It may irritate them. And people say, you are unbearable. Screw you. We don't want to see you again. But still in their subconscious mind, they will have seen somebody who does this. It's like this is planting a seed. Even when they get angry at you, even if they go against you and they do something ugly, after they die, their subconscious mind will know and will say, stupid me. I had in front of me the example of somebody who was living by the rules of dharma. I had in front of me somebody who was spiritual. And I behaved like an asshole and I'm sorry, I repent right now. But the seed is there. It's much better to give an example rather than trying to humor and oblige and waste time in ways which are not benefiting you and not benefiting others. But remember, some people are conditioned psychologically. Unfortunately, some people are the slaves of their own desires. There is a typology in the nine typologies of the Enneagram, a typology which is called the altruist. The number two typology is a person who constantly is trying to oblige everybody by doing things for them. It's the person who constantly jumps out of their comfort zone and says, and, and wants to do something, oh, let me do this, yeah I'll do this. And five years later, that person is plugging your eyes out and saying, yes, you are doing this to me and you remember that I stood up in the middle of the night for you and did that and... And then you feel like saying, fuck you, who asked you to stay up in the middle of the night and do it for you? You kind of did it to me almost without asking, you know? And now you're plugging my eyes out for it. Now you are making me regurgitated, you know? There are people who want to oblige others. They feel that they get power over others. They feel that this is the way they can be safe by keeping other people obliged to them all the time and in this way creating a web of karmic obligation. These people are not creating freedom. These people are creating ties, ties that bind. These people are creating bondage, not freedom. Therefore, meditate on this, because it may be superhumanly tough and sound very cold, but at the same time it reflects with Ajna, accuracy, it's like the razor-sharp discrimination of Ajna Chakra. See, seeing the fact that things are so and so, it is useless to do this and that. Of course, many people say, well, I cannot conform to that. I'm too weak to live by such an enlightened Ajna Chakra. Nevertheless, the truth remains. It shines like a star up there. And you can attach your chariot to that star. You can try, at least from time to time, to live according to those great principles. (coughs) Number five, which probably will be the last for tonight's reading, and thus we reach to the half of this sharp chapter. Seeing that our descendants themselves are subject to death, like don't think your children are going to live forever or anything, everybody dies, and and that whatever worldly goods we may bequeath to them are certain to be lost eventually, it is useless to make bequests of the things of this world. Like meditate on the ephemeral nature of things. You leave something and there are people who have this false, this fake sense of love, where they think that, oh yeah, you know, I've worked my ass all my life, but I did it for my children. It's out of love. I'm giving them something. It's actually just a material thing issued out of attachment. It can be interpreted on the lower levels as a gift of love. But you can ask yourself, what did Jesus leave to his disciples, to his apostles? What did Rumi leave to his disciples, to his apostles, so to speak? What did Ramakrishna leave to his disciples? What did any of the great teachers leave besides the spiritual knowledge, besides the spiritual initiation, Yes, Ramakrishna left something to his disciples. And that something was the fact that their souls were transformed forever. That fact was that those people were snatched out of ignorance. He left those people with immortality. What did Vivekananda get from, react, from interacting with Ramakrishna? Vivekananda got immortality. That's what he got. Vivekananda got eternal life, Vivekananda got enlightenment, he got a lot. Physically, did he get something physical from Ramakrishna? Did Ramakrishna at least give his handkerchief to Vivekananda and say, get my handkerchief as a symbol of my love for you? Nothing. They didn't leave anything. People are lolling themselves in the illusion That by bequeathing worldly goods and so on, you are demonstrating some love or something of the kind. I'm not saying that (coughs) if you die, you should not leave your goods. But it is exactly like the Christian monks and others. Before they went into monastery, they sold everything they had. They gave it to the poor. Then when they went into the monastery, they were poor. Everything which they had, even the clothes they are wearing, they belong to the monastery, nothing belonged to them. So when a monk dies, or when a nun dies, they put them in a sack, they don't even bother to make a coffin. They just put them in a cloth sack, throw them, dump them into a hole. That's it. Like, what did you have? And what are you expecting? What are you trying to wear? Like, killing this painful illusion in which people build this incredible illusion that you can actually connect, you can take something with you. If you cannot take it directly, then you take it indirectly because I left a lot of shoes to my descendants. Like What, am, what is my soul going to get because I left a lot of shoes to my descendants? It's nothing, it's not something which you can take with you, anywhere. That is why the Tibetan yoga is having again this cruel, sharp way. Not for the purpose of cruelty, I hope you realize these are people whose basic rule is compassion, loving kindness. But compassion and loving kindness is not about doing superficial things. It's an illusion. People always try to place their things on superficial things. That's why most of the mystics and others, they disagree with the superficial forms of charity. Today, many people have transformed religion into charity, giving alms of charity. I'm not saying that alms and charity are wrong or bad, but they should not be done instead Of the spiritual things. Like, I am not doing prayer, I am not doing meditation, I am not transforming myself spiritually, I am not doing, I'm not living a moral and ethical life, but I am doing charity. Charity cannot complement for those. It's the illusion of materialistic people. Ever since the Catholic Church started with this shit a thousand years ago, where they were selling indulgences. For money, they were selling forgiveness from sins. If you donate a hundred to the church, you can be exonerated of one fornication. If you give a thousand to the church, you can be exempt of a murder. If you give ten thousand to the church, God knows of what they are going to forgive you from. Ridiculous that people can think that with material things, they can compensate for their spiritual evolution. It's true, with material things you can compensate some karmic debts, which are physical, like you can compensate the same thing. But what, kind, what amount of spirit can you buy with a, with a hundred coins? What spirit can you buy with a thousand coins or with a million coins? If somebody would have come to Jesus and said, instead of me following you and being devoted to you and all that shit, I'm giving you a million. Put me in the book. Make me one of your apostles. And when you give them the Holy Spirit, give it to me as well. Because you are financially independent right now. You and your bunch of hippies can go wherever you want. Live in five-star hotels. Don't care about food. You are totally financially okay because I'm giving you money. Even for a second, can you contemplate that Jesus would have said yes? Everybody knows that Jesus would have mocked it and would have scolded the person who did that by telling them you cannot buy immortality, you cannot buy the kingdom of heaven just because you do some seva, just because you do... Yes, seva and donations and karma yoga, they do have their functions. Karma yoga is something special because it's a yoga. But... Taken in the meaning of just doing charity. It does have a function because it compensates for negative karma. And that's good. But the fact that you compensate for negative karma does not make you gain spiritual experience. It does not make you become more evolved spiritually. You are just as evolved as before but with less negative karma, which is not bad. That's why I'm telling, you should do charity. You should do seva. You should do lots of selfless service. But not with the hope that that is going to compensate for your meditation. There is only one exception. That exception is karma yoga. But in karma yoga you do something else. You consecrate. Before you do something, you close your eyes and you say, God, you are doing this through my Body, I'm consecrating this to you, teach me, show me, be here. And then you learn something by being part of that flow because you yourself are caught in that magic experience which the karma yoga creates. But otherwise, normal service and others, they are good. But they do not compensate for the spiritual evolution. Let's not, let's create a clear discrimination and see what is what and what is not. Therefore, seeing that our descendants themselves are subject to death and that whatever worldly goods we may bequeath to them are certain to be lost eventually, it is useless to make bequests of the things of the world. When Ramakrishna wanted to leave something to Vivekananda. He didn't leave him anything material. He called himself one day in the room, uh, just a short time before his death, and he said, sit here with me and we'll meditate. And they meditated for a couple of hours and Vivekananda felt some real weird stuff, like it was very intense and Ramakrishna was almost agonizing in that meditation. And then when they finished the meditation, Ramakrishna was full of tears and very humble, and he told to him, now I have given you everything that I accumulated through my spiritual practice, or even my paranormal powers, I passed them into your aura. Now I'm just a beggar, I'm nobody. That was a gift, not of something material, which like Ramakrishna, the expression which was used by some Western Occultists in this, because it was done in shamanism and others, it was passing the sock, like you take the socks of your teacher and you wear the socks of your teacher. It's passing the sock because it's passing the aura, it's passing passing a vehicle of the aura from the teacher to the pupil. And it it has been done often. That is a gift, but it's a gift of a spiritual nature. It is a gift in which spiritual realization Is being transmitted because the disciple can use it, can take benefit from it, and help the world be of usefulness to the world. And that is why here you have had a few useless things Tibetan way, very many of them very tough, very sharp, and rising so many questions, you know, like, wow, who can live life at that level? and at the same time, of course, being a great subject for meditation. We managed to go through half of this chapter. I suppose that in our next satsang, we'll manage to cover the other half of this chapter, and thus conclude it. Let us remain in silence for a couple of minutes, so that the subconscious mind can calm down and absorb harmoniously the Tibetan message of spirituality, after which we'll stop for tonight and part. And that will do. With this, we'll finish for tonight. Namaste to all of you and thank you for joining us in this meeting. I will meet you in the next meetings, in the next satsang, where we'll continue with some of the teachings of the Tibetan yogis.